Welcome to Health System CIO's interview with Greg Nakandri, CMIO at University of Rochester Medical Center. I'm Kate Gamble, Managing Editor and Director of Social Media. In this podcast, Dr. Nakandri talks about what the pandemic taught him about change management, how his team is leveraging technology to ease the documentation burden and more effectively train surgeons, the continuously evolving role of the CMIO, and the critical role that social determinants play in giving providers a more accurate picture and enabling them to more effectively diagnose and treat patients. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. I know there's so much going on, so grateful to to have some time to chat with you. Yeah, my pleasure. Okay, so you are CMIO at University of Rochester Medical Center, and you've been in the role since 2019? Yes, I'm an orthopedic surgeon and uh, have been in practice since 2009. I did my medical school at Virginia Commonwealth University and then residency at University of Washington in Seattle and then a fellowship in sports medicine at Duke, started practice in 2009 and then transitioned into the role of chief medical information officer in 2019. Okay. So definitely want to kind of get into a little bit more how that happened, but can you talk about the ways that that COVID really transformed the way care is practiced and and really the workflows and just kind of walk through like how everything changed most for you because of COVID? So for me, it affected both obviously my clinical practice, but then also in my role as chief medical information officer, I got to see how it affected everybody's practice. And within medicine, each different specialty and subspecialty had differing levels of impact. So for a large portion of what we did, things transitioned to completely out of hospital, all telemedicine. And we were able to actually ramp that up very quickly and effectively for many specialties within our organization. But there are others that just are not able to be done. They're high touch practices and there's no way you have to uh, be seeing those patients in person. And so coming up with the ways to make that as safe as possible by leveraging technology was something else we did. So understanding how we put a geocached gate around our parking lots so that when patients arrived in the parking lot, we would know that they were there and we'd be able to send them a text message and say, hey, check in for your appointment now and take this COVID screener. And then we knew that we were able to protect our employees by doing that. And we were able to protect our patients by doing that so that we could facilitate those in-person encounters, which was significant. You know, everybody always talks about the, the telemedicine and telehealth aspect of COVID. But I think there was a lot of things we did to modernize our overall infrastructure during that period of time as well that were really exciting. Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, I guess you could think of it as as a ripple effect. It helped move some things along that probably really did need progress. Absolutely. I think healthcare pre-2020 was very different than what it is now. And that was in large part due to COVID. We had to make very quick determinations on what technology to employ and how can we do that at scale for our organization, for our patients and our providers. And it definitely, you know, there's nothing like a crisis to move things forward very quickly, but it taught us that we could be effective in doing that. 
Yeah. So from your perspective as CMIO, can you talk about the change management aspect when it came to implementing a digital strategy or moving that digital strategy forward and kind of what what was your uh, approach there? So I think change management is the most important thing for an organization really to be successful. And I think the pandemic actually made that process easier because people knew that they had to change. They were receptive to change and they had the desire component because for a lot of our providers, they literally could not practice or take care of their patients unless they adopted some new way of working. And for our patients, they wanted to be seen for their problems. And they also understood that they would need to be open to some untraditional ways of doing that. And so they partnered with us to learn new technologies. And I think I'm a a disciple, I guess, for lack of a better term, of the ADCAR change management philosophy. ADCAR stands for awareness is step one. Desire is step two. Knowledge is step three. Ability is step four. And reinforcement is step five. And so I think, you know, we're always very good at making people aware that a change is coming. We send out emails, we put up posters, we do lots to try to make people aware. But where I think we fall down a little bit is that desire. You know, just because we told people a change was coming, does it really mean they want that change? Yeah. And I think in the pandemic, that barrier was decreased significantly because everybody needed that change. So our traditional change management methods were effective because we were able to give them knowledge and people made the effort to attain the ability. Whereas now that we're post-pandemic, when you try to initiate things that you think are seemingly smaller changes, we stood up telemedicine in two weeks for an entire organization and healthcare system. We can't do that now because there's not that same underlying driver. And so what that taught me was really to focus on making sure that either you're building desire or you are responding to organizational needs where there is already a desire there because you're going to be way more successful uh, at getting people the abilities that they need to actually execute on that change to make it effectively happen. Yeah. And when you talk about some of the change that's being driven now post-COVID, what are some of the initiatives or what are some of the things that you're doing that where that is necessary? So I think our biggest issue right now, at least from a chief medical information officer perspective, is clinician and provider burnout Mm -hmm. and just attrition. When you look at the numbers, you know, I recently had my 20-year medical school reunion and there was a little uh, survey that came out around that same time for people of my age. And 35% of those people said that they were looking to retire early. 25% of those people said they were looking to get out of medicine altogether within the next couple of years. And 50% said that they were going to decrease their direct patient care hours in the next year. And that's in the face of an existing physician shortage that we expect to get worse because we know that we're not producing physicians fast enough to handle the population. And now we've got more people 
saying that they're going to retire early. You know, it wasn't too long ago that physicians were practicing into their 70s and 80s because it was such a great job and people just really enjoyed doing it. And now I hear more and more that especially those physicians at that stage in their career are just moving out, whether it's due to, you know, all of the administrivia and and things that we need to do or other factors. And so the projects that we're doing is really aimed at trying to bring the joy back to medicine and leveraging technology and augmented intelligence to really help and partner us with us so that we can do the thing we enjoy, which is communicating with patients, empathizing, educating, and do less of the administrivia, which is pre-authorizations, in-basket tasks, over-documentation for legal and compliance reasons, and the sort. Yeah. And kind of along those lines, are you looking at things like AI or what's really been the approach in trying to leverage technology to take away some of those tasks or reduce them? So some of it is leveraging technology that's not AI. Some is looking into AI and some is just changing workflow and culture. So start with the workflow and culture you know, we had an initiative just called DC the CC. So when we went live with the electronic health record in 2009, we thought it was a really good idea for providers within our system. If they were seen by a specialist, we would just automatically route that note to the primary care provider mm-hmm. because we thought the specialist's routinely were faxing or sending their note by some other means. So this is a great win for the electronic health record. But what we didn't really realize was that by sending every note, you're sending that initial consult as well as, you know, me as an orthopedic surgeon, I might see the patient six times over the course of a fracture recovery, and we're never doing anything to change any management. And historically, I wouldn't send a note to the primary care provider about those. I would just send a note saying, hey, everything went well. Uh, and the patient is healed. And so with the PCPs now getting all of those notes all of the time, we looked at the number of characters in their in-basket that they are reading per day. And it's basically, if you were to read all of those notes, it would be the equivalent of reading Lord of the Flies every single day. Oh my so God. you know what's happening is that they're not able to read that. So they're auto-completing those notes or clicking buttons And those nuggets that come by one or two times a day that are actually important are getting lost. But that's a change that wasn't as easy as just a flip of the switch, because some of the primary care docs, even though it's technically impossible to actually read in detail every note, would say, no, 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 I really want all of those notes because I might look at them sometime, even though they probably hadn't in in 10 years. So it was, you know, an interesting example of kind of the culture change that needs to happen, as well as, you know, something that that would be a relatively easy technology switch. Other things we're looking at are note documentation. Providers spend about 30% of their time uh, doing documentation. And, you know, oftentimes it's more than half the visit time. So if you have 15 minutes to spend with your doctor, the doctor actually spends about seven minutes typing and clicking things into the computer or taking notes and dictating later. And 
it's really diminished the connection between the doctor and the patient because you've put this computer and keyboard and mouse in the room. And we're starting to leverage technology now where you use ambient methods to understand the conversation between the doctor and patient and generate a structured note from that that can then be reviewed and save time. Uh, and we've started to pilot this a little bit in our organization, and it has been significant for our providers that have been able to use it. Some have saved over two hours per day of documentation time, which is time that they're either getting back with their families, time to exercise or read a book, or if they desire time to see more patients and improve access for the patient population in our community. Yeah, that's a pretty significant win, um, especially when you are talking about things like burnout, which is a real problem, but something that you understand and can relate to. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's something I certainly see my colleagues struggle with every day. And that's why as chief medical information officer, I still practice and I think it's important to still practice. And, and I have the benefit of understanding workflows in the OR, workflows in the inpatient setting, workflows in the ambulatory setting, and then, you know, being able to help my team of informaticists really examine and look at those workflows, examine and look at our technologies, make sure that the technology is configured correctly to support our workflows, or how can we educate and help our colleagues leverage the technology in their workflow in a better way so that they can lead a better quality life and deliver higher quality care to their patients. Right. And if there is a tool that could help with that, sure. But it's also about more about the workflow and even just simplifying processes. Yep. Yeah, the team, we use data to try to drive that. You know, it's interesting, nurses and doctors didn't go to medical school and nursing school to become data entry technicians. And a lot of times with the advent of the electronic health record, that's what we feel like we're doing. We're basically pointing and clicking and typing data into the computer, and we're frankly not really good at it. There's errors or we do it incorrectly or it just takes a ton of time and delays the efficiency of the care. And this is where finally, you know, I think in, in 2023, we're at the point where technology that is really good at that, uh, computers that are really good at that can help offload some of that burden by automating it, whether it's through, you know, ambient AI, as I mentioned, or computer vision, or some of the large language models uh, that have recently become available. It's really an exciting time for thinking about what medicine can be like in the future, but it's certainly going to take a big effort in terms of making sure we're using that in the correct way, making sure that we're able to communicate effectively about it and educate people in the use of these new tools. Because I think, you know, the way you do your job is going to change and it is going to be better for both patients and providers, but it's, it's obviously important that we're doing it in the right way. Yeah. I like that acronym, ADCAR. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing with VR in terms of uh, surgical training and assessment and kind of, you know, along the lines of what we talked about, but how that is making a difference or can make a difference and maybe some of the uh, roadblocks there? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as a surgeon, I got very interested in the way that we educate residents and surgical trainees because I just, there was just a disconnect in my mind. I understood as a resident, I got to see lots of different people do the same operation on lots of different patients. 
And there was a huge amount of variability in surgical skill as well as technique. And so for me, you know, repairing the rotator cuff, lots of patients will say, yeah, I saw a doctor and, and they repaired my rotator cuff, but that doesn't really tell the whole story. There's a lot that goes into that. And the technical skill of the surgeon actually accounts for 26% of the patient's outcome. And it's something that we never measure and something that is not publicly available to patients. Often you choose your surgeon based on word of mouth or uh, a referral as opposed to technical ability. So I, I got very interested in understanding how can we measure technical ability? And then once we can actually measure technical ability, how do we help people improve it so that we decrease that variability um, over time? And there's been a lot of breakthroughs recently with technology, both for assessment and for training. Yeah, that's really interesting. When you said that statistic of 26%, that is really surprising. I guess that, that that was probably a good driver and maybe something where it could kind of help you sell it or just kind of encourage people to try this or adopt this. So right now, the way hospitals and accrediting organizations certify their, their surgical team is really just talking to clinical colleagues and saying, hey, is this person a good surgeon or not? And I think over time, you know, video-based assessment is going to be very important. We came up with really good assessment tools that certainly can say, all right, if uh, you evaluate multiple surgeons doing the same procedure, the ones that score better on the assessment tool actually get better patient outcomes in real life. The problem with that is that having people spend time to view those surgeries and do the ratings is extremely time intensive and cumbersome for the raters. But now with the advent of, of computer vision and AI, you can record the procedure, you can label the various steps of the procedure, and you can assess how accurately they were performed. You can't improve what you don't measure. So things start with measuring first, but likewise, technology is significantly improved now how we can actually train the residents to be better and to perform better on those assessments. And that's where the advent of the immersive VR has played a significant role. You know, I, I think you know, historically you would buy a really expensive simulator or you would use cadaveric specimens to try to learn how to do a surgical procedure without operating on a live patient. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is that is very expensive and you don't get a lot of repetition. So it was very good for very basic things, um, but very hard to reproduce and do for everything. Right. The nice thing now about immersive VR is that, you know, with a single headset, you have the ability to teach people all of the various cognitive aspects of a surgical procedure across many surgical procedures and across many specialties. So we generally work on teaching our residents basic skills in the lab. You know, how hard do you press a knife to make an incision? How do you use a saw to cut bone? How do you triangulate a wire to hit a target in the femur? Those are all skills that are 
transferable, whether you're doing an ankle fracture or a knee replacement or a shoulder rotator cuff repair, they're very similar. And most residents attain them in like the first couple of years of training. But for the rest of your life, you're learning new techniques and procedures. And every single technique has its own nuances. It has very specific normal anatomy, very specific abnormal anatomy and patterns that you're looking for different repair constructs that you are trying to achieve, and then very different orders of steps of the procedure and common pitfalls or errors that might happen. And all of those things can be taught in an immersive VR environment, which is really, really exciting because it it significantly diminishes the learning curve. Um, Yeah. And that variety, right? Exactly. Okay. So it sounds like you guys are really definitely doing some very cool work. Now, as far as taking on the CMIO role, can you just talk a little bit about how that happened? Was it something that you were seeking or sometimes these things kind of, you know, have an interesting way of unfolding? Yeah, I think when you talk to most of my CMIO colleagues, their way of landing in the role was was very similar and that was by happenstance. You know, I think for me, I I had this research interest in surgical education, particularly for residents, and that taught me a lot about performance improvement and technology. And as I got into clinical practice, I started to see a lot of inefficiencies that came from not understanding how to leverage the electronic health record and other technology tools that we had available to us and got very interested in in learning more about them. And so, you know, I went, we use Epic as our EHR. I went to Epic, learned how to be a physician builder, and then got very interested in not only learning how to use those tools for myself, but teaching my colleagues how to use them. And I guess over time became more successful and recognized for that. And in our organization, we hadn't had a chief medical information officer really for about three years. And there was a need for somebody to help colleagues with burnout and leveraging technology within the workflow and improving efficiencies. And it kind of just uh, naturally happened where the, the position came open. It was something that I really enjoyed and was excited about and said, you know, yeah, I'm just an orthopedic surgeon. I never really thought about expanding this role outside of this. And it's a really fun job that I have. But I wanted to challenge myself with new leadership skills and and other opportunities, and I wanted to have a bigger impact. I grew up in Rochester, which is where my medical center is. And, you know, as an orthopedic surgeon, you have a certain impact, but this really would let me help hopefully increase the level of the quality of care and the happiness of my physician colleagues for our entire system, which is what excites me about it. Sure. And then even since then, it seems like the role has evolved and it has become more strategic. It seems like it's something that's going to keep changing, but certainly in a positive direction. Yeah. You know, I think we're into kind of chief medical information officer 3.0. I think 1.0 was really organizations recognize the need to have somebody to help implement their EHRs. And usually they approached somebody with a, a technical affinity and said, hey, you're a doctor that has technical affinity. Can you work with ISD to help us implement the EHR? I think the early EHRs and EHRs still are pretty cumbersome. And 
they were really not entirely well received because if you talk about change management, I mean, that's probably the biggest change in healthcare, at least since I've been practicing. Um, and so there was a lot of dissatisfaction. And so CMIO 2.0 was kind of help us improve and optimize clinician use of the EHR. And that's where we were right up until COVID. So I think, you know, that's the job that I initially got hired for. And then when COVID happened, we started to have to rapidly evaluate new technologies, come up with new strategies. And, you know, I got involved more in a senior leadership discussion where we would work together to kind of figure out, you know, what is the appropriate governance? How are we going to execute on change management? It became much more of a partnership between ISD, informatics, and our uh, clinical operations partners uh, to really strategically figure these things out. And coming through the pandemic now, that has persisted and certainly been a more effective and, and different way of working uh, amongst our groups. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 3.0 now, but we'll probably keep changing. I mean, it's, you know, what we're seeing is so interesting with the entire C-suites really evolving to reflect digital transformation, but in some ways it still need these really core pieces, but maybe how they work together is what's going to keep changing. Yeah. Yeah. I think just learning how to be more effective. I mean, it, it's all, it's all experience and trial and error and continuous improvement. And as you identify your gaps, you either have to figure out, is that a skill that me as a CMIO needs to evolve? Or do we need to have somebody else be expert in that area? I think yeah. the applications of AI are certainly going to be the next challenge. And it's an exciting world of opportunities there, but certainly it is going to be a big job to make sure that it's done right and done in both uh, a way that equitably improves care for our patients, as well as is cost-effective for our organization and does not contribute to increasing the levels of clinician, physician, resident, APP, and nursing burnout. Yeah. Yeah. And I did actually want to ask about one more initiative, which was what uh, Rochester is doing for health equity and anti-racism technology. So can you just talk a little bit about that program and, and what you're doing there? Yeah. So I think the, you know, even pre-pandemic, we were starting to to work on this, but obviously through the pandemic, it just tightened the problem of health inequity. And as an organization, we were very similar to lots of other organizations. And again, it, it just goes back to even that surgical training paradigm. You can't improve what you don't measure. And so you had to figure out what is it that we are going to measure and improve. And for our organization, and like many areas, Rochester is uh, number one in some bad things. Uh, it's number one in child poverty. And there's a discrepancy of nine years of life expectancy between people who maybe only live less than 10 miles apart. Hmm. And a lot of that is driven by health inequities and racism. And how do we change that life expectancy 
so that the ultimate healthcare outcome is more equal across our entire population. And so we started that by first saying, you know, we have to identify, we have to know our population, both on a population level, uh, but also translate that to our providers. So we had an old demographic form that didn't really allow us to capture data about who our patients were, how they identified from a race perspective. And so we we updated that and were able to get our data more reflective of the community of patients that, that we take care of. And we know that social determinants drive a lot more in terms of health outcomes when compared to the different procedures or treatments that we offer. But it's a lot harder for us to kind of understand where our patients are at with those needs and how to actually move the needle on that. And so it really started by saying, okay, as a technology team, we need to give our caregivers more information about that person that they are seeing that day so that they can reflect on that and make sure that the care plan that they're offering makes sense in that situation. And so, you know, you can see two 17-year-old soccer players who have the same injury, and you know that inequities exist on the population level, but you have no idea how it relates. You know, one of them may only be getting 0.8 meals per day, and the other one might be getting 2.7 meals per day. Yeah. And if you do the exact same intervention, somebody who doesn't know where their next meal is coming from is not going to have the same healthcare outcome. Or somebody who does not have the ability as an orthopedic surgeon, a simple transportation to physical therapy. Again, I know that there's a large percentage of our population in Rochester who have transportation needs, but when I have a patient in front of me for 10 minutes, I have no idea how that actually impacts them. And so we started asking our patients those questions. We talked to them about why we were asking those questions. They have partnered with us. And now that information shows up at each clinic visit, at each inpatient visit, so that the care team who's taking care of that patient is aware when needs arise and can help start kind of thinking about that as they're coming up with care plans for the patients. Yeah, that's so important. And it's, it's encouraging to see more organizations are really getting deeper into this. And hopefully there's sharing and best practice sharing too, to see this take off more. It's like you said, you see two patients and you have no idea until you have the information, how different their, their lives could be. Yes. And there, and there is lots of collaboration in this, in this arena, both, you know, on a national level and a local level, we as a health system thought that it was really important to collect the data on our patients, but in order for them to feel comfortable giving us and sharing that data with us, they had to know that we were listening and that we were going to do something about it. Yeah. And we initially started just by kind of integrating our own local 211 directory, which we have a wealth of community-based organizations in Rochester that not everybody knows about. I actually learned through this project that 211 nationally covers almost 98% of the U.S. population. And so it's a low bar because it's just like yellow pages, but at least it is a quick and easy way to get patients information about resources that they might need. 
And then beyond that, you know, we're partnering with our own community, the United Way. We have a systems integration project, our local government that is really helping us try to figure out uh, how we can streamline this with our health system, as well as one of the other health systems in the region and a lot of the players around data and our community-based organizations. And then nationally, obviously, there's been a lot of work that has gone into making healthcare data interoperable. Our systems are, are finally starting to be able to talk to each other. And at the national level, the ONC has been really good at starting to say, okay, from an interoperability standpoint, this data around uh, demographics and social determinants of health is important data, and we want it shareable among uh, organizations and EHRs. And so I think, you know, that's really going to help us start to finally move the needle on this. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's a time where th there are so many frustrations and, and there is burnout, but then at the same time, there's so much progress. So it's a really interesting time, I would think, to be in your shoes. Yeah, there's definitely not a lack of projects and needs to address. It's been great partnering with lots of colleagues and collaborators across the country because we all kind of share the same needs, but have the resources to really focus on a few of them. But then it becomes a lot easier for organizations to kind of fast follow when we each have different successes. And so, you know, that's kind of been our strategy where we focus on two or three really big things to move the needle for us. And then we look to other organizations to tie their partner with or to fast follow to, you know, kind of broaden what we can do with the resources we have. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Okay. We've covered a lot. Um, I could definitely keep speaking to you, but I think I should let you go. But thank you. Thanks so much. It's really interesting to hear about what you guys are doing. And uh, I appreciate getting the, the CMIO perspective, which we don't get as often. <laughs> so thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. It was fun, uh, fun talking and uh, look forward to it. Thank you for listening to this podcast from healthsystemcio.com. To hear other podcasts, visit our website or subscribe to our account in iTunes at healthsystemcio.com backslash podcast.